Welcome back into the We Shall Not Sleep podcast. Thank you so much for joining us once again this week. We are finally back to a normal schedule. I really appreciate all the patience you have all had with our shakeups the last few weeks because we've had to reschedule so many of these interviews that I know you all have been um, really fond of and have grown accustomed to hearing on a regular basis. So tonight, we are back to it. Thank you so much. And I know that you'll appreciate the guest. But before all that, to get some of our formalities out of the way, I have to remind you that if you ever want to contact the show with suggestions, feedback, criticisms, anything, I don't care, it's wsnspodcast at gmail.com. In addition to that, please feel free to connect with us on our Facebook page. And we are found on SoundCloud, where we're hosted. Shout out to them. We really appreciate it. And you can find us on our YouTube channel, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Okay, so our guest tonight is Dr. Alan Knight from Spring Arbor University. He has a Ph.D. in Business Administration from Anderson University and an MBA from my alma mater, Olivet Nazarene University. He started his tenure in 2008 with Spring Arbor. He has years of business uh, experience and leadership with uh, publishing, such as Baker and Taylor Distributors, InterVarsity Press, and then Spring Arbor Distributors. Um, him and his wife have two kids together, a wonderful family. And for him, this is this is kind of a it's a passion for him. But he enjoys a wide variety of interests, including business, obviously history, theology, philosophy. You will just love his passion. And I really appreciate his, not just perspective, but his willingness to come be part of this podcast. So without further ado, here is Dr. Alan Knight. All right, well, Dr. Knight, thank you so much for joining me uh, this evening. It's been very great to have gotten to know you over the last uh, several years. I think my father introduced us on a lunch several, several years ago, and for whatever reason, which I think some people will find out, uh, he keeps talking about you like you're a good guy. So I figured oh. <laughs> I'd have to, you know, not just trust uh, trust and verify, I have to go that second step sure. and to see how my dad uh, came to that conclusion. Great. So Well, thanks, Michael. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, and uh, I think... One of the things that when we had breakfast about a month ago is something that we, we talked about, if you, you want to dare call it a uh, pre-production meeting, was just yes. kind of getting a, a feel of where each other have been in life, because that's the first time I ever had a one-on-one conversation with you. That's right. But just knowing the fact we're both Christians, uh, you're in business, but you've traveled, you've been able to experience things that I haven't. And I think having your voice, your experience, your education is is very it's gonna be very helpful for a lot of people um, out there, including including like personal friends of mine, not just people I don't know. Um, so, as I ask of everybody when they come on this show, I, I have to because it's such a precious thing. Is as a fellow Christian, I have to ask what what was your come to Jesus moment? How did you become a Christian? Uh, what was that moment like for you, or how, how was the lead up for that? Well, it's interesting you ask the question uh, in that specific way. I, I wouldn't say that it was um, a moment necessarily. It was sort of a process in the sense that my mother and dad were believers, and so I didn't know of a situation where I wasn't going to Sunday school. I mean, that's my earliest memory. They're one of them, you know, going to church and being involved in the class. I went to the 
the Dana First Methodist Church in Dana, Indiana. Okay, All right. a thriving city of about 650 people. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and and uh, but my mother um, read to me um, and shared with me. Uh, most of the people out there in your audience aren't going to know about Ergermeyer's uh, Bible stories, but the, the the Church of God Anderson published a book. Uh, a Bible story book for young readers, basically. And my mother used to read. I've still got it at home, and I think it's probably close to, well, I know it's, it's got to be over 70. It's probably an 80-year-old book at home, but that's, um, I was fascinated by, by the Bible stories. And um, so as I got older, um, I, my folks said, well, um, Alan, you know, you, we would like for you to begin to go to a, a church of Christ. They both um, came to their faith and, and then were baptized, accepted Christ, were baptized in the church of Christ, which I don't know how you, much you know about Methodism necessarily, but um, you know, my folks believed in full immersion mm-hmm. uh, sure. and, and adult baptism. So I started visiting this uh, other church, Ridge Farm, Illinois, which isn't, nobody's going to know where that is, but it I, I was really impressed with with the preaching, but I was traveled with the preacher a couple times, and um, he had a little lesson book. Uh, and I'm sure lots of preachers, uh, evangelists, whatever, have a similar document. You know, oh, you're interested in learning about Jesus. Here's a sort of a workbook to work through. And so I, I worked through that, and I believe, and I don't remember if I was exactly 12 or 13. I should know, but it was on. Uh, it was a day that that uh, my birthday, which was April the 14th, fell on the Easter day. So uh, I came to Christ in, in an evening service, a Sunday evening service, at uh, the Ridge Farm Church of Christ, uh, well, low many years ago. And so I have, boy, I, I don't know if I want to say I've walked with Christ. Um, sometimes I've walked with Christ. Uh, sometimes I've crawled to Christ, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes yeah. I've turned my back mm-hmm. on Jesus. And, and, and yet, uh, I, I've, as I look back now, you know, I'm not a young guy like you are. I'm, uh, <laughs> I turned 70 in April. Uh, and I begin to see patterns, okay, um, even when I was in the 6th and 7th, 5th grade, possibly, um, and I believe that, that God had a purpose for us. And that, that may have come very well from, you know, not only just reading Scripture, but also from my mother's direction. And my dad was a believer, very much so, but, but most of that training or learning came from my mom. Um, and so I, you know, I, I really always felt there was a purpose, you know, but that on a continuum, that purpose of life, uh, as I got older and went through high school, I wanted to see if, um, you know, I really wanted to be rich, wanted to have a lot of money, wanted to be a millionaire, which in those days was a lot of money. Well, it's still a lot of money by some reckoning. Yeah, I heard they don't make as good as yachts as they used to. <laughs> no, they don't. So, but at the same time, I had had a call that I felt was an audible call, and and uh, that to some sort of a profession or some sort of a, a life commitment, and I didn't have it all formed out like I do today, but I just remember, I woke up one morning and I said to my mother, you know, God wants me to be a doctor, a medical doctor, 
And so that was the focus of my educational pursuit, uh, even in, in uh, middle school and high school. I knew that I needed to get prepared. So I mean, people don't take Latin anymore. They don't even offer it. But I had, you know, Latin, two years of Latin in high school, a uh, year of French. I mean, but but uh, anyway, all that to say, it was you know every science course I could take in high school, uh, and then I went went to college. Um, I went to several colleges, but mm -hmm. my first college was a specialized in pre-med education, liberal arts education. And I'll try to speed this up because I like to talk. But uh, bottom line is, by my sophomore year, I realized this wasn't going to work. Mm -hmm. I wasn't cutting it. And that was, that was a real devastation. Also, at the same time, I was pretty serious about a young lady, and, and that fell apart. And so that was a real low point. Sure, I can imagine. You know, in my life then. And up to that point, I'd had a, you know, pretty pretty fun time with summer jobs and so forth. I mean, my first summer out of high school, I worked at Mount Rushmore in sales. Oh, my, in sales? Yeah, I, wor I worked at the, uh, the part of the shop, and, you know, tourists would come in. Mm -hmm. But we sold Native American art and jewelry and pottery, and it was fabulous. I got to meet... Some really wonderful people that that summer. I hear I was only eighteen. Uh, then the next two summers, because I met somebody from a, a major bus company uh, who happened to be a tour director, I said I want to do that. And she's told me, says, well, here's the guy you need to call in Washington D.C. So the next two summers, I um, was a tour director, and I usually took anywhere from thirty-five to forty-two passengers from. New York City or Washington D.C. out to the West Coast and back. They were thirty-day tours, so that was that was a summer job. So uh, I think it gave me a great wow. experience, right, Michael? No kidding. That I almost want to hear more about that. How? <laughs> so you would go from East Coast to West Coast as a tour. You would, would you be driving it or no? Would you I had a driver. Okay. So my job was, you know, to wear a double-breasted sport coat and a tie and a pair of slacks wear my Continental Trailways pin, which I still have, walk up and down the aisles, keep people happy, right. talk to them about the next stop or what sure. we're going to do. And so, you know, we'd start out from, from Port Authority Bus Terminal in New York City. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people, it was their first time crossing oh, yeah. uh, the Hudson River. I mean, they, they had never been into right. uh, America, you know, the, the main part of America. And so for the next 30 days, and we traveled to the West Coast and and sort of via more southern route and then came back more nor northern route. So, uh, you know, people got to visit, you know, um, Pittsburgh and the Golden Triangle and Indianapolis and I, I could go on and on. But every day it was another, another yeah, destination. I mean, that, that's hitting the majority of the continental United States. Oh, it, it really um, did. I mean, we just didn't go into the deep south sure. from those trips. I mean, I did take a couple trips into the deep south, but... But mostly, I like those California tours. So, yeah. so they were a lot of fun and met a lot of wonderful people. Oh, I, and, oh, uh, I bet. I was just a kid, you know. I mean, most of the people were from say forty to eighty, you know. Mm -hmm. And so here's this little upstart kid. What's he doing? How does he know? Well, the trick was, my mother and dad were members of AAA, and I just got a series of the AAA books. I don't know. You probably even know what I'm talking no, about. Well, it's from for car insurance. No, it was car. Well, actually, they were travel guides. Oh, they were travel guides. Okay. And you you could get them by state or regions, and I would just look ahead for this next town coming up. Oh, I'd quickly awesome. read, you know, the description, <laughs> and I mean, I knew something about U.S. geography, but I could. Well, you know, we're coming up on, you know, Concord, Michigan, yeah. you know, and blah blah blah. 
And uh, so it was, it was a very exciting summer job, and, and I got paid about three times an hourly wage of what it would have been to work on the roads, which you know a lot of, a lot of young men worked on the roads in between sure. college. I would imagine some of those included tips at some point. Oh, yeah, well, I got tips at the end of the trip. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. The reason why I, I almost light up when you say that is because for the last two years when I was at Olivet, which we share as an alma mater, yes. which we'll talk about in a moment, um, I did a, a trip not as extravagant nor not nearly as long, but I was hired as a student worker to go and be a part of what they call their primetime trips where the mm. older alumni would go on mm. a trip, two mm. tour buses, go, go somewhere okay. for a week, and they would ask the students to uh, go through the aisles, make sure they collect trash, hand out food, ask everyone's okay, and we would be in charge of carrying all the luggage. So the, the seniors would get off the bus. They didn't have to worry about anything. Right, um, exactly. So yep. that that was now we weren't the tour guides, but we we basically just managed all the logistics. Right. So any of the shows we went to, any of the out the sure. tourists, we would make sure we're just constantly with them, giving out water, making sure they're okay, and then also spending time with them, hearing from them, asking about their Olivet story. You know, that's you know Olivet Nazarene University sure, for those sure. who want to know. Uh, that was that's something that I loved, uh, and I had an opportunity to go on two of those. So when you say that, like okay. that sounds like a dream because we all got tips at the end of it, sure. too. Um, so that was that was really really cool. Um, I didn't know that was part of your, your well, judgment. That's yeah, really I, awesome. I got, you know, we could talk about firefighting and and chauffeuring ambulances and all kinds of yeah. stuff. But I I just I've kind of lived my life that if there's an opportunity, try to take it. And yeah. and so you, you you know you build these experiences. And and as I look back. I have to I have to pause though and say I'll bet I'll bet one thing you didn't do with the Olivet uh, trips was uh, roulette. Probably, we no, we no. did tire roulette. So so oh, people okay. we had a piece of chalk, and people would mark a spot on a, the tire, you know the front right tire. Mm -hmm. They were getting on board, put their initials on it, and then I don't forget what they like a dollar in a pot or something. You okay. know? And then we stopped for lunch. We'd see you know. Whose name and mark was at the top of the arc on the wheel, and they they won. So, wow! Now that yeah. now that's creative. I haven't yeah. heard of that before. Yeah, you know, but uh, that's not to say I'm a gambler. But I mean, that oh was, sure, that no. Was, yeah. we, if it, that was happening, that was that was in a in a dark room somewhere as like a quote unquote black market trading yeah, on, right. those, on those trips. <laughs> um, the so you actually just began to talk about it about your education history yes. when when you were a sophomore and kind of going through that little bit of a crisis mode. Is that did you continue with that college? I'm just curious. How no, did you? No, I didn't actually. Okay, because um, I know you you got your what your BS at Milligan. Is I that, did, and that then is you went to Olivet, and then to Anderson. Uh, and Anderson. So how how do you trace that journey then? Well, um, you know, at the time I I decided I'd just go down to Indiana State. I was at Wabash College. It was an excellent college, and I went down to Indiana State for the, my spring sophomore semester, and I basically just uh, blew it off. I mean, I, I did. Horrible job. I mean, I flunked a couple of courses, but I did get really good at bid euchre. I played bid euchre most nights from about eleven to four, and so I, I understand students today. You know, I mean, and and so ultimately, again, you know, my mom, um, God bless her, she she realized, um, you know, I needed to get my act together, and she wasn't real forceful about it. But we had a uh, our preacher at that time, Lucian Robinson was at Woodland Heights Christian Church in Crawfordsville, and he'd graduated from Milligan. And I think she talked with him, and he said, well, you know, you ought to take Alan down to Milligan and visit it, which which we did that spring of my sophomore year. 
and I fell in love with the campus. It's in eastern Tennessee. It's in the foothills of the Appalachians. You know, it's it's just a it's a perfect place uh, to be a college student, in my estimation. And so uh, I ended up going there my junior and senior year. But I also changed majors from from uh, pre med biology concentration to business administration. And that sounds like a huge change. It is a huge change. Uh, and and I always, you know, I, I felt like, oh my goodness, you know. Uh, what about this call the Lord's placed on me? So, um, you know, I brought a business uh, in between my junior and senior year in a little town in Indiana, um, finished my undergrad course, uh, moved to Greencastle, uh, spent a few years there with this business, then moved on closer to Indianapolis, Indiana, and um, had a business reversal. And so um, ultimately ended up getting a job up in Illinois. And so it was, um, I, I moved from sort of financial services to businesses, which is what the little business was that I owned, uh, and a company that was a book distributor hired me. Okay, yeah. And uh, the name of the company was Baker and Taylor, and their plant was in Moments, Illinois, which is, you know, not too far from, right. yeah. from Olivet and, and Kankakee. Almost a second home. Yeah, so I... I moved, uh, li lived in Bourbon A. I I'm pronouncing that right. See? Yes, you are. Now, for those of you out there in the audience, you probably don't know that if you live in that part, you have to say the village is Bourbon A, the township is Bourbonus. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, so that, that is right. <laughs> Which is really interesting because, you know, it, it doesn't matter. But it's those little things, idiosyncrasies you learn about areas, which I think makes part, part of living in different places fascinating. Absolutely. Right? You know? Yeah, adds to uh, it. So I worked... Uh, from 1980 to 1987 at Baker and Taylor, and I was a, um, a director uh, over the purchasing. So we we were at that time, I don't know, 75, 80 million dollar business, and I had a department of about 25, 30 people worked with me. Um, so I oversaw all the book purchasing, so that part of the supply chain, uh, as well as the non-book purchasing. I began to realize, you know, I was walking. I know, around, which I did a lot. I'm, I'm one of these, have you ever heard of the term MBWA? MBWA. M -B it's yeah. called Management by Walking Around. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, still, I still think that's, that's a critical, critical thing, MBWA. And, and too few uh, leaders, managers, executives do that today. You want to get to know what's, what's going on because it's the folks that are making it happen out there, the frontline folks. Those are the people you want to talk to. Yeah, that's and, right. And, and, and so you can't do that if you're in an office and sitting in a meeting. You, you need to get up and, and get out, greet people, let them know that you appreciate what they're doing. You know, maybe they tell you, what, hey, you know, my child is sick or don't know if I can make my car payment this month or whatever. I mean, all those things are, are important. Um, and we don't have a lifetime where I could tell you why I think that folds into what it means to run a business in a manner that reflects both uh, servanthood and stewardship, which, which are terms that I've, have grown on me more recently than, than back in the 80s when I was at Baker and Taylor. So I also realized that I, I needed to go back to college. Um, I didn't feel like I had the requisite information and hadn't connected the dots that I needed to do. And so I, I decided to to go for the Master's of Business Administration program, which was offered at Olivet Nazarene. Yeah. So I sort of 
you know, clear the path for you in, in later years. I really know? appreciate that. Yeah, so I, I, I was taught everything <laughs> I know by your mistakes and your failures. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But I also, because of that, didn't have as much fun at Olivet because they instituted all those rules. Yeah, you know, well, I, I could tell you about some. Uh, I used to, when I went to church, well, well, I did go to church after I moved. That's a whole different story. But um, so the fact was that then I, I, I also changed. I moved from Baker and Taylor to InterVarsity Press, which is an arm mm -hmm. of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I became their marketing and sales director. So I managed the marketing and sales for InterVarsity Press for about three years. It was, a, it was an exciting, exciting time. I mean, you know, I got to meet, well, actually, John Stott. Again, a lot of people may not know who he is, but at one time, um, you know, he wrote a book called The Cross of Christ, uh, which is very popular in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And he was also the uh, Queen Elizabeth's uh, personal chaplain for, for a long time. Mm. And um, uh, InterVarsity Press really introduced me to authors and thinkers that had come out of, in, in some cases, uh, the Oxford movement, in other cases, um, you know, Anglicans who had sort of had a renewal kind of experience and so um, there's a number of really fantastic authors maybe again some of your audience may not know but but if you, if you get a chance you should go to InterVarsity Press's website and see some of the uh, the backlist uh, books that they have as well as the new things I think they're one of the one of most in my opinion uh, credible Christian publishers for the person who hungers to be challenged spiritually and, and um, so, anyway, I was there for three years, and then I was hired um, by Spring Arbor Distributors, not to be confused with Spring Arbor University, Spring Arbor Distributors to take over and, and manage the purchasing here in, in, in Michigan at their Belleville corporate headquarters, Belleville, Michigan. And so I was there a few years, and uh, the president came to me, one day, and, and actually I think he was still vice president at the time, he said, Alan, he says, you know, we think you could do better um, for us in, in business development work. So I'd had some history in doing that. Uh, when I was at Baker and Taylor, for instance, um, I helped develop the first religious uh, products catalog that that company had, and we served probably 25,000 between libraries, academic libraries, and retailers. Um, and then when I came to, um, you know, Spring Arbor, um, they decided, well, why don't you go out and help, you know, do some business development. I was a vice president. So basically I, um, I went out and we provided services to smaller publishers mm -hmm. who didn't want to fuss with their own inventory, who realized that working the back office parts of, of publishing was very costly especially in times uh, in, in terms of focus. Wait, I'm, I'm a publisher. I'm trying to find authors and publish them. But wait a minute, somebody just ran in from the warehouse to say, oh, my gosh, a, a skid turned over. What am I supposed to do? Right, yeah. Yeah, so, so what we did is we could come in and say, we'll take over your distribution. And then the second thing that we did at, at Spring Arbor was, was we collected money. We were the, basically the first vendor to be, get paid because for a retailer at that time, uh, if a publisher cut them off because they couldn't pay the bill, 
they could come to Spring Arbor and get the same book. Now, they didn't get it quite at the same discount. So we were, you know, a, a provider who uh, got paid before pretty much anybody else. Uh, it, it, was, it was an interesting dynamic. So, you know, publishers began to, to come to us. I spent a lot of years on the road. Uh, I was in the air uh, quite a bit, you know, sometimes three, four days a week. Mm. And, um, you know, it's nice, nice being um, platinum, uh, with Northwest Airlines, yeah. so Northwest Airlines doesn't exist anymore, but, um, you know, I traveled uh, not much internationally, mostly uh, west coast to the south and to the east coast, so um, I had clients in Alabama and Texas and Arkansas and California and Colorado and Illinois and Just you know, terrible New York. places to travel. Yeah, to, right? right, yeah, you know, you have to have dinner in New York City and, you know, put it on your expense tab and... right. But um, my boss was very good to me. He was a, he was a road warrior as well. And and if, if you're going to be a road warrior, you want to have a boss that's a road warrior. You understand because they understand yeah. the vagaries of of, of travel and everything. So with with doing this, you ended up eventually uh, your your way to Spring Arbor University, where we met. So right. how, how did you end up at Spring Arbor University? And how how did you know you wanted to get a PhD in business administration. I mean, how, how does that, just that journey? Well, I, I think it's just, it's an ongoing spiritual journey because it was in, it was in that, in that time frame from InterVarsity to um, Spring Arbor Distributors that I get introduced to the Book of Common Prayer. Right? Oh, yes. And um, the faith tradition that I grew up in, the focus was um, on the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, um, mm -hmm. Eucharist, okay, communion. And... Uh, when I saw the beauty of the language uh, in the prayer book, and I thought, holy smokes, you know, we're not, you know, we'd have these little devotionals, and I'm not, I'm not knocking anything that people do. I'm just saying, you know, from my perspective, and I thought, wow, there's this richness uh, that, that goes back several hundred years, and, and um, so that sort of set me on the journey, and, and, and my spiritual journey has been one of the things that concerned me in the Church of Christ and I love it. I mean, it's it's also called the Stone Campbell movement. You may not have not have heard of it, but they, and it, it goes back to roughly 1809 here in the United States. It was a, a movement in the U.S. Um, and I I I felt like I would have become such a good Christian. Um, those are air quotes for those of you who can't see. Uh, and and uh, I began to carve off. People okay, well, they don't believe quite what I do. They're 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 not worthy of my fellowship. I mean that to put it in the, the harshest terms I can, and I, I kept seeing that 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 group of of connections was getting smaller and smaller. And I came down to saying, well, you know, Alan, you know, maybe you're going to be the only real true Christian. And and I just woke up and said, whoa, wait a minute, that can't be right. You know, something's wrong here. Um, and I think coming back to my experience with InterVarsity and then meeting some of these other publishers from all these different backgrounds, I begin to see, well, you know, Christ's kingdom, um, first of all, I'm not the judge of what's, what that's going to look like and who it's going to be, um, you know, and my role is to share, uh, you know, Christ. And, and fast forward 10 years, I mean, sort of the culmination of that was, you know, I went through a, a divorce and, and then remarried and I'd always been so vehemently, I thought, you know, I just condemned anybody that, that had those kinds of issues. And, and I, I still think, you know, I, I'm not trying to 
make it seem less onerous or anything else. But that was sort of my wake-up moment. And those, those things are converging. Okay, the Eucharist. Okay. Just, just like everybody else, right? <laughs> you know, the, and then I wrote, you know, Alan, you're, you're, just, you're just a sinner saved. I mean, I could articulate that, you know, but then. But having a heart knowledge right. of that, of full understanding. Yeah, and, and um, so without getting too much of the biographical background, I've probably done too much now. I'm, I'm hoping to give some tidbits that maybe that people can hang on, not that they're going to live my life, but that they can see that if they're experiencing similar conundrums, challenges, friction, disappointments, failures, and so forth. Um, and so I had a, um, another business that failed, and, and I called, um, actually it was called Living Epistles. Some of you may know the Lord's Gym t-shirt, and my wife and I still own the rights to that mm-hmm. t-shirt. And I talked to a friend of mine um, that I'd known as a business associate one evening, and he said, Alan, you know what? He said, you know, I, I know your story. I know what you've been through. Um, you know what I think? I think you should should go back to university and get your doctorate and teach. <laughs> and I said, Steve, that's just about the most idiotic, crazy thing anybody's ever told to me. But I said, because I have such respect for you, and I do. He's a wonderful man of God. I said, I will pray about it over the weekend. And by Monday morning, I knew that's what I was supposed to do, was to go back to grad school and, and leave the, you know, the corporate world behind. Um, I, I, I also do consulting, and I, I was making some pretty nice money consulting. American Bible Society was one of my clients for a while, um, and, and other organizations. So um, went back to grad school, and um, that took me about seven years to get through and defend my dissertation. Uh, so started in 2007, started teaching at Spring Arbor University um, in 2008, and then was hired full-time in 2009 or 10, and so I've been there ever since. But, but my focus is on, because I've worked with small businesses, I love entrepreneurial thinking, I love people who want to innovate, and how I've packaged all that up, at least my thinking is, I mentioned earlier, Really, our call as believers a, is to serve others. And I think, uh, may not be the only way, but I think that, that free markets, uh, allowing people the choice, this idea of, 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 of freedom, um, and then the other part of it is, is you know, this idea of um, stewardship. Mm-hmm. So serving others. And then being a good steward, because, you know, um, I think maybe I mentioned this to you. God is creator. God created the universe. And what does it say in Genesis? You know, God's greatest handiwork was humanity, right? Well, in, in, in doing that, God gave us creative talents, right? We were made in his image, right? So Exactly, yeah. And so as... I don't want to say fellow creators, but, but, you know, creators after his image, you know, each one of us has some kind of a gift. God's gifted us, and, and we need to utilize that to advance God's work. Not everybody realizes that. I get that. But I think, but what I'm talking about now is developing this worldview over all this, this lifelong, you know, sure. and, and, and realizing that, you know, people have these gifts and, and, um, Moving out of sort of the the material realm, and I'm very much still, you know, 
I got lots of material blessings, but but I'm not. I don't make. You know, I make less than a a third of what I made was in my corporate life. Um, but if I can impart that, see, that's that's where the university makes sense to me. Um, to help these students see that and, and, and to capture, maybe from my life journey, and I don't necessarily tell them all the things that I'm telling you, and I just realized you're recording it, aren't you? Yes, Not right. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, so, uh, cut. Uh, yeah. So, you, you, you know, the... The amazing thing, remember this, this common theme I mentioned, right? When I was a fairly young kid, God called me to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Medical doctor. Yeah. And um, the assistant rector at, at my church at the time in Belleville was meeting with me and uh, some of my business colleagues in 2006, I think, maybe, let's just call it that, 2006, because I was really troubled with what was going on with the business. I had my management team there. I asked her if she could come and join us in prayer. Um, and she prayed over all of us, you know, it was really interesting. She had us kneel and, and, and she asked for our discernment over what, what God's call was. It was, it was quite a, an interesting evening. And when we, when we were done with that prayer time, she, um, sat down around the table and we were having some refreshment. And so she went around the table and my son, Eddie was there, who's a graphic designer and going around the table, different, I think it was about four of us, five of us maybe. And she came and she says, well, what, what, um, Tell me a little bit about your background. And that's when I shared the story that I just shared here about the call to be a doctor. And, and she said, Alan, did you ever think God called you to be a healer? Now, I was 56 at the time. That was 40-some years since I thought God called me to be a medical doctor. And it probably took me to get to the appreciation of what the real call was, you know, living out that, that, that life, right? And so where I find myself now, I mean, I always have been interested in other people and if I can help them in some way, give them some counsel in some way. But now God has, has allowed me to be in a situation at a small university where we get to know our students, work with them sometimes up to four years, you know, if they're in our major area, and encourage them on this idea of servanthood uh, you know, stewardship, and the importance of, of, of commerce in helping improve people's lives. You know, I, I, I don't think God has a problem with, with people eating healthily, and uh, we just said, you know, we have to be careful that doesn't become our God, right, the material thing. Exactly, yes. Um, so, you know, to know I'm sending out, in some small way, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm the catalyst for every one of these students, but I'm part of a network of other faculty and professors, you see, and so I'm I'm comfortable that this has been my life call. It just took me, you know, from a few years to get there. You know, yeah. about fifty years. Yeah, and I and I really do appreciate that that passion because, and you mentioned a little bit of the the fundamentals that that you you yourself uh, believe in, which which I I share a common understanding, even though I'm not a businessman myself, but one of my one of my coworkers, um, who I'll give a shout out, who was my first uh, guest on here, uh, Mr. Michael Perry. Uh, he's he has two franchises of Big B Coffee here, and he also works at the same place I do at Linear Incorporated. And he's mm -hmm. he shared a lot of that perspective. And so I asked him a little bit about this too several months ago. But one of the things that I have to ask you um, is 
the fact that at least in our country, and this is, again, for those who potentially might be you know, living outside the United States, you have an understanding that our churches here function as a business. And they, they have a particular rights given to them that is granted to us by our government that puts us in a certain category of business, but they're still business. We still have things, we still have bills we have to pay in order to maintain a building, in order to have a space, versus other people who don't have to worry about that necessarily because the church is either uh, burned down, not, not there, or it's an, or they're meeting in secret. They don't have that type of burden. Sure. So I would say if you are assessing, if you are just broadly assessing the church in America, um, how do you think the business is doing? <laughs> That's a very loaded question, well, but, I, sure but, I, asked, but well, I asked that on purpose. Uh, I, you know, I think, think my biggest concern as I look out, and, and I was... Um, you know, I've watched because of my involvement with publishing and the Christian music business and distribution. Oh my, yeah, yeah. You know, I saw a lot of these various movements take take off, take forward. You know, um, and you know, Calvary Chapel and Vineyard and so forth. That you know, thirty years ago, forty years ago, were pretty uh, began, and, and there's several of those left, but but they began a movement towards this mega church. Um, and I have to say, I, I think that's where the business model um, has gone awry because it's, it, it's so easy as a leader to get enamored with yourself and, yeah, and, and, and look at the growth uh, and measure it by numbers. And I, you know, I, and, I, and I think that's, there's nothing wrong with Having revenue that exceeds expenses. In fact, if you want to keep your doors open, I, I would argue that that doesn't matter what you're doing. Right. <laughs> Ultimately, um, that has to happen. But if if that becomes the purpose, and it may be it it it's insidious, right? I mean, it, it comes in, and it, it's just a it's a little flash, and then it becomes a little flame, and and then it grows into raging inferno. Um, and I have just news, and I won't mention the person's name, a uh, gentleman who was very popular on, on religious TV, um, oh, probably 40 years ago, 50, yeah, at least 40, 45 years ago, went to prison, and, and um, you know, which was some wrongdoing, and got out, started another church, and then just is getting charged with, with uh, basically, false, and I don't know if it's false advertising or not, but that's what the federal government has decided to do on some sort of treatment for a particular disease. Um, I, th I think it's easy, and again, I, I don't know the man's heart. I'm not saying anything about him. I'm not going to mention his name, as I said. However, um, there's a certain sense of genuineness that you can spot in people if you, if you talk to them, get to know them. And I think the danger is even, even you look at so many of these People like Willow Creek, for example. I don't know if you follow Willow Creek yeah, very yeah. closely. Well, at least certainly right. being close to it in Olivet during those years, right. you become very aware of it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And and I and so the question is, what's the drive? And and I think I think the answer, at least in my mind, is this: that a lot of these mega churches succeed, and they and they follow a certain level of the marketing concept, which they may not understand. That's what they're doing. But okay, I've got an audience out here. And I want to figure out how I can get them excited and interested in me. And I think what's happened with a lot of worship, and this is where the 
if you will, the, the worship that goes way back even into the synagogue that became part of Christian worship, you know, those elements, and then ultimately we see it in Catholicism and Anglicanism and Orthodoxy, and so it is who is, who's being entertained? Yeah, what, what are we there to do at church? Right, so are we, are we as parishioners, congregants, sitting in the pews, the ones being entertained? And that's what I saw at Willow Creek. And again, I don't want to you know, cast aspersions on Willow Creek, but I remember when I said, man. Oh, go ahead, it's fine. Oh, this is fantastic. And I remember my, my two oldest kids were, were younger then, because that was in the 1980s, and, and they were just mesmerized by the, the tightness of the production. I mean, it was like going to Broadway. Yeah, it, it's a concert. Um, right. And I think, yeah, you, you just touched upon this. It's, it's motive. You're, you're basically attacking right. motive. motive. You can have a church that's growing. Um, Absolutely. With, 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 its, with its amount of people and with the amount of income, the tithing. Right. I mean, hopefully, if you're preaching the word and you're, in a, and you're doing so in a particular community, the Holy Spirit can move and draw people together. Oh, absolutely. Jesus drew, drew people towards him. Uh, it was not the most popular message in the day. No. But he drew them there. So to an extent, I would love if, if my church grew. But, sure. But I also I tell my, my people at my church, my congregants, that it doesn't, those people don't have to come to my church to be saved. Right. And because I know that there's other churches out there, believe it or not, uh, that aren't that are, I don't intend that are okay. Then I think that's the other time, other thing that we don't like. We kind of get in this competition of like, well, if yes. I talk to someone about the supermarket, that about my faith, and then they don't come to my church, and I somehow failed because they haven't come to my church because right. my church is the only way to heaven. Right. Um, I had a professor at Olivet. I don't know if you remember the name or know the name, Doctor Mark Quanstrom. I don't. But they uh, he's the he's the uh, head pastor of, of College Church there. Uh, okay. Right on the campus, and he's also, at least at the time when I was there, the dean of uh, dean of the school of theology. And he said in one of my upper level theology classes, yes. my senior year, I'll never forget it. Uh, he said, you know, sometimes the church that is preaching the gospel in its most pure form is the church that's losing people, mm. because the truth is so difficult to hear. Mm. Um, and he says the temptation for some pastors is that. When you start looking at the finances and you look at who works for you and you're, who you're accountable for and they're your friends and the board's saying, we're going to have to make some cuts. And the temptation, he goes, not all pastors, but it's like, so do I talk about divorce this Sunday or do I, talk, do I give them a feel-good message right. just to keep them in the, in the pews? And he's saying, I'm not saying that to, so that we can excuse that behavior, but he was trying to get us young, like young right, students... Right giving us the kind of the context of the temptation that awaits you uh, so you have an improper understanding because it's so mm. easy to say, ah, yeah, they sold out because they're about themselves, which might be very true in the end, sure. but the journey of getting there is not just because they're sinister necessarily. Right, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, again, like I said, it's insidious. I mean, it begins to, you know, hey, that worked. Let me try something, yeah. something more. And you know, it's interesting, and I, I'm not here to promote um, traditional Anglicanism. Uh, I'm not a, an Episcopalian. <laughs> uh, I'm an Anglican. I have been an Episcopalian. Um, and um, our pastor, uh, rector, if you will, um, at the beginning of the summer was going to teach and did uh, preach uh, a series on Deuteronomy. Oh, boy, didn't that sound exciting. <laughs> Actually, it was, but it was very exciting. But what's interesting, and I don't know if you know about the liturgical churches, 
they follow electionary. Yes, absolutely. And yep. and so um, our parish follows electionary, and so he had to go outside the, the electionary in order to do this. He had to go to the bishop and say, "Look, I want to do this series." Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And and the and the bishop um, had to give him permission, which I which I, you know, I mean, for some people go, "Well, well you know, how, how's the spirit working out?" Well, the spirit worked, you know, with our pastor. He felt like there was messages that in in these sections of, of Deuteronomy, but he also demonstrated, you know, authority that he had an authority over him, and, and I, you know, I was I was impressed by that, you know, and, and sitting there and and I, um, any rate, it just it's an interesting model. I'm not saying it's the only model or the right model. I I you know. Um, Right. I think the right model is is Jesus is King. That's the right model, right. which is becoming more and more controversial as we have continued to go on. And you know that it's very difficult because in in our society you would think of well more if you have more consumers and therefore more income you're doing something right. But right. When it comes to the Christian tradition and evaluating the business, Paul gives us a definition of you know from Galatians chapter five about how if you're going to be a Christian, here's what you're. Like, here's yes. what your faith should taste like, this yes. fruit that we have. And it's that you can't put that on paper. You have to right. live with people. You have to walk with people. You have to, like you were doing, much like you you were talking about this walk-around business management. Right. And also being with students, you're elbow to elbow with people. You're seeing them live out that, that faith. That's and true, yeah. when you look at the thousands of followers of Jesus, which I find fascinating, thousands of followers, he had 12 disciples, and discipleship is so much different than followership yes. from Jesus. Yep. And a, one of those disciples completely betrayed him, and all of them fell away uh, when he was crucified. So that's a little humbling for the rest of us. <laughs> right. And you know, If it and, isn't, it should yeah, be, right? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, if, and that's where I think, too, if I'm publishing, maybe you can, maybe this is a joke that I, I say this, but if I were to write a book, which I do, I do want to write a book at some point here shortly. I've been working on one. Oh, have you? Yeah. yeah. Good and, for you. And if I want to publish it, and it's a Christian book, and it's completely, it is like right in line, it does not violate the Apostles' Creed. Sure. It's completely orthodox. And it makes the New York Times bestseller. I'd be kind of nervous about that. Because the, the gospel message is not a popular right. thing. Right. And I'm not, and I am not saying that that, that someone's a heretic if they make the New York Times bestselling list. No, I, I'm just saying that inherently it's not going to be popular, but it seems as if, from my perspective, my short 27 years, that growing up in that, in that environment that, I mean, the height of, of Christian liberalism in the 90s, I mean, we're, it was at the peak. That was, that was uh, and from, from my perspective, because at least after that, you started to see the Catholic Church started to crack in the 2000s yeah. with its scandals. You start to, you started to see a lot of the scandals from a lot of these megachurch pastors. Right. But the 90s, that that was it had such a foothold in politics and and power and sway that at least 20 years ago, look, it looks kind of ridiculous now, but it's still there. It's not like all these megachurches have closed. So, right. I guess my question to you is that I don't want those people to go away. Right. But is it? And you have to build a check motive, but are we are we still is there still something that we're we're still mixing up the fact that it's a business, but we're still marketing it like a business? Unfortunately, I, I'm just well, you know, a few years ago, um, a gentleman by the name of Donald Miller out of Nashville uh, started a a program on it, it's a way of marketing. The name will come to me in just a second. I had it just a second. Um, and and it's decided. Oh, um, story brand. I can't. Uh, and 
I think I think he's really onto something that can also be used for churches, and maybe maybe it started. And that that idea is it, it continues to turn um, the focus away away from from the self. And the, and the concept of story brand is uh, let's imagine that I'm a, a congregation, and I can define pretty well, you know, what what areas that I not only can succeed in, but excel in, okay? And, and you know, look, some, some people have uh, great uh, sermons, right? You know, others are pastors and healers. Others are uh, organizers. And, and we know that the scripture talks about these, these different gifts. So, um, but the idea behind story brand is, okay, if you've defined in your congregation uh, what it is you think your strengths are and, and, then you say, okay, this, and here's where some people may get, go kind of crazy when you hear this, but, all right, so what is my brand, okay? What is the brand of the North Adams Church, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and, and don't take that too far, but it just says, okay, I, I can't do, I'm not Willow Creek, mm-hmm. okay? Um, I'm not Holy Trinity, Anglican Parish, and Hillsdale. I'm North Adams. So what do we have on offer here? And, and, and the story brand idea is basically you're searching for those people, be they seated in your church congregation, be they people you don't know, but, but we're in a, a logical service area. Um, think of them from the standpoint of, of story, and I, get, I have to be get real careful if I get too uh, into philosophy because I'll mess it up, but, but the idea of you know, story as... as, as written about by Aristotle and so forth, you know, there's, there's a, a hero and a guide and an unresolved conflict. So the hero of the story, so the North Adam, is not the pastor. No. The hero is actually, now, bear in mind, Jesus is over all this, but, but is that member of your constituency who is lost, and I don't mean lost necessarily outside of Christ, but, but they have some sort of unresolved conflict. Maybe it's marital issues, maybe it's children's issues, maybe it's financial issues, whatever it might be. Maybe it's drug abuse. Um, you are the guide. You and the other parishioners, you're the, the stronger parishioners, are the guide to help the person who's having those challenges seek reconciliation. And, and your mission and your ministry to them is to say, hey, Alan, you know, I, I, you've come to me. I know you've got this, this issue let me help you find a resolution to it. And, and I think that perspective, I'm fascinated by that perspective, and I only stumbled, I say stumbled, I probably I stumbled on lots of stuff. I read too much. But, but uh, when I found that, I said, man, this, is, this helps make the, the whole idea of business and the marketing concept down into something that could really be embraced by, by Christians, by believers. Because, again, this goes back to what I'd already formulated was servanthood, right, and stewardship. And then to see Donald Miller's uh, construct. And so that's what we work on in, in our classes, okay? What is it that is unresolved that, uh, and can we define a constituency that we can help them with resolution because we are able to guide them to resolution? So what that says is, I can't serve everybody. And, and we know that just by, right, because uh, can Willow Creek, I know they've tried to do that, and I, I'm using Willow Creek as a, general statement for all these mega churches, sure. right? Yeah. They try to break down into small groups, and some are very successful and, and some aren't, right? Because 
whoever's a senior pastor, he can't even begin to deal with 10,000 people, right? He no. doesn't even know all their names. Yeah, and you have 100 qualified leaders that, that are going to be teaching and have the same type of theological convictions. Right. Not that they have to, but it'd be nice that when you have a congregation, they're all learning the same oh, type of thing about any, I mean, you name it as far as any sort of uh, sure. theological discipline. Uh, that's interesting. So the, again, like so, hero, uh, hero guide and resolution. Right, right. So the customer, I say the customer, the parishioner. Sure. Uh, you know the congregant, the, the person that's outside the church, it, it is is takes on the figure of the hero. And, and don't don't you know, think about some of these big name heroes. You know, like we might call David a hero under, under certain circumstances. No, yeah, of course. Uh, but it's but it's that's that's the focus. Now you know, ideally, we want to get them to come to realization, but, but we're there to serve them and help them resolve that conflict. It's not about, you know, look at me as Alan Knight or look at you as Michael Crable. You know, we're the stars of the show here. And, of course, you know, Jesus is, is the star. Jesus is the king. And, and I just began reading a book this summer, published in 2017. Uh, it's called... Um, it's, uh, Salvation by allegiance, which which ought to send some uh, people up up in arms when when they read this guy's book. It's written by Matthew Bates, and it's it's a fantastic book, and I won't get into much of it other than to say I, I, it's a it's another s step towards me sort of reconciling you know, some of these issues that I've, I've thought about over the years. And, and basically all he says is, no, salvation is by grace, but the continuation of, of are, are we loyal yeah. to Jesus as king? Yeah. You know, it's not just like, right. Be like? And, and I think he really helps put it together. And he uses a, a, a Greek word, which, by the way, a, a, another scholar I was interested in 50 years ago used the same word in more or less the same uh, context. So, um, and I re I've really had to think about that because I think it's I think it's easy for us. What what is it when we and I don't know. Do you have communion in, in your congregation? Yes, yes, sir. Um, so, you know, as we gather around the table, um, and think about Christ, but see Christ, we we follow through right with his. What, what's the mysteries of the faith? You know, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Right, and and so. The reason Christ can come again is because Revelation tells you know, Jesus is king. Jesus is on the throne. Yeah. And um, I, th I think it's easy for us to forget that, especially uh, I'm somewhat a student of history, and, and you see the times we're in right now. It's, it's scary, yeah. very scary. Yeah. Um, and has it been scary before? Absolutely. We just haven't had access in the 1500s or right. the thousands and, or the 800s and for, for the information. And for this country, it's like once a generation where you kind of experience these times, sure. um, you know, and, you know, for, for me, where we're at, where I'm standing, you know, as a, as an older millennial, well, actually, actually I'm on the younger, younger side of millennials now, you know, I, everything that's going on in the world, like still doesn't really affect me all that much. Uh, right. It affects me uh, indirectly through how other people are, are experiencing sure. and then they become what, well, how do they feel disenfranchised? Doesn't, doesn't mean that that is the most important thing, but I want to be able to know where people are at. Um, right. I mean, again, it's kind of the effective speech one-on-one of know your audience. Oh, um, absolutely. Now you, you bring up 
uh, so many good points. And we we could <laughs> I no, apologize. No, we could, maybe I'll we come could, back no, sometime. Yeah, that I would. I love a part two. The reason why is because there there's so many different branches here that we could go down. But I, I guess uh, for for me, when we look at not just we look at just the state of the church today, but I, I would almost want to talk about business because there was a there was a gentleman who have also had on this podcast that when he was well, he's involved in real estate now and he's achieved his goal. But when he was a freshman at Olivet, he told people his goal was to be a millionaire someday. And a lot of people, because he was taking ministry classes too, and, sure. Um, a lot of us ministry people would be like, well, "Wait, isn't that kind of a bad thing?" And there's this like misnomer that if you have a lot of money, right, or that if you make money, that that somehow you end up you're always going to be the rich young ruler that Jesus, mm. um, you know, rebukes about not being able to give their entire life. Um, uh, to, to him, not being willing to, to risk everything, to give sure, everything away, sure. uh, which is comical because that's just a complete complete judgmentalism. Now, I think for somebody as you and your experience, how what are some of the misconceptions, misnomers um, that Christians have about businessmen, successful businessmen or our businesses that either ally themselves with the Christian church or who are Christians themselves who right. happen to make a lot of money? What are some, what are some things that we just get wrong about, well, about all of that? That's a, that's a great question. You know, I'm somewhat a student of economics as well, and and I tend to follow a particular arena. I won't get into it. I mean, it's called Austrian economics, but but um, and it's really about free markets and freedom. I think I think the the biggest challenge is is people. Uh, well, for example, and. Uh, I have issues with Jeff Bezos uh, more politically than I do with his success as a business person. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we can look at Jeff Bezos and say, well, this guy's got billions of dollars, and I don't have that. Well, the reason Jeff has billions of dollars is because he created, along with others, a business called Amazon and a lot of offshoots from that that actually provide me with a great deal of convenience as well as you. I don't know if you buy anything from Amazon oh, yeah. or not. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so so one of the things that that how wealth gets created for you, for you and me as well as for Jeff Bezos is to lower transaction costs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and that's exactly what's happened. Instead of me, I you know I live in the idyllic town of Concord. So instead <laughs> of instead of me having to run into Jackson, though I did run into Jackson three times today, which didn't make me real happy, but no Running in to see you made me happy. Well, then running in to see my daughter. Well, made we'll, me happy. we'll find oh, out. Yeah. yeah. Any rate, so so all that to say, you know, but but I can pick up a phone and in two days have a box right from from Amazon as opposed to running into into Jackson. I don't mind running into Jackson. I'm just saying, but you know, if you run low on it's and it's it's just as economically beneficial to me. And then when I think about my my opportunity cost or the cost of me running into Jackson and back if I don't want to because I have to pick up something. You know that's time that I could have been spent doing something else. Okay, so so lowering transaction costs—that's exactly how Bill Gates made his money. He made it easier for people to communicate uh, data and information through Microsoft, or you know we could talk about Apple. Okay, uh, any of those big things. That's what about Henry Ford? What did Henry Ford do? He lowered the transaction costs of people owning an automobile. I think those are all great things. You know his—I believe I think I have this right. When he hired his workers for his factories, he realized that they couldn't necessarily own one of his vehicles. He said, I have to get the price of that vehicle down through efficiency and so on and so on so that my 
the average person who works for Ford Motor Company can buy a Model T. And I think at the time they were three hundred sixty-five dollars. Uh, so that's that's the the beauty of of the business. Now, what happens is when, when wealth can lead to hubris. Okay, wealth can lead to saying, you know, just because I'm good at one thing. I can be good at something else. So now all of a sudden, you know, I'm a rich man and I can tell Michael, this is how I think you should live. That's where I have a problem with wealth. And that's what we're seeing, I think, today in the world from a lot of very wealthy, not, not all, but I mean, there's significant wealthy people who are combining with, with some of our uh, political leaders. And again, I don't want to get into, po- but, but to, it's to, connected, sure. to begin to force people and reduce their freedom uh, uh, of choice, uh, and I'm not talking about babies here. Right. That's no. not freedom of choice, first of all. But, but you know, for me to be a consumer, which we all are consumers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, th- I think that's where people uh, get confused. And the, and the other thing that was never thought about this until several years ago is every economic uh, transaction has two sides. You know, students come to me and say, well, you know, how come so-and-so gets to... They can buy a Hummer and I can't, and, and how's that fair? And I said, well, did that Hummer just appear to just take his magic or she, take a magic wand, poof, there's a Hummer? No. They bought that Hummer. How did that Hummer get built? Yeah. Uh, you know, somebody had to build it. So, so wages were paid. And, and so I think we tend to, again, we tend to focus too much, all of us, on ourself and not consider... And I don't want to make it too, you know, we don't have to get complicated about it, but it's, it involves so many other things. And, and again, being able to go out and buy something, you know, it looks to me like you get your water from the water store. Yep. Yep. Yes, I so do. somebody delivers it, right? Uh, no, I pick it up. Oh, do you? Yes, yes, I do. I go there and I pick it up. But uh, let's say for the example that I did have it delivered here. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's fine. But I mean, so, so someone is, is, has a job because you want to have a five-gallon bottle of water. Yep. That's correct. You see. Uh, or if you drive to get it, you buy gas that yep. how many workers have been involved in getting that gasoline into your car? I, I grant you that. You're probably self-filled the vehicle. But before that, who knows how many hundreds of people have had some hand in. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I think we tend to lose sight of that. So we just see the end number. and It's like they have it, I don't. Right. Therefore, it's wrong. Right. And it's also, it's a, again, it's a, I think it's a... Judgment on the fact that every we talk about stewardship that like every wealthy person either did it for the sake of being wealthy, and that's all they care about, or that once they have this wealth they can't be good stewards of it. Right. Because God forbid that there might be somebody out there that God has blessed that's actually really good at handling money and Certainly. making sure it gets placed in a and for a good and holy cause versus sure. just self indulgence. I think we kind right. of let, well, they must be successful, so they must be selling out their soul somewhere right. because majority of Christians are not millionaires. So therefore, if somebody's a millionaire in the room, then they're doing something wrong or they're right. worshiping their money. And that, I mean, how sinister is that? Well, absolutely. And, and um, you know, I've uh, been an entrepreneur, still sort of am, and, and I've worked with entrepreneurs a good part of my career, and I teach entrepreneurship. And, and I think the thing is that, you know, there are, specifics that we can help people understand they need to do in order to be a successful entrepreneur. But that, that is only a small part of, of, of their being successful. Some of it's the vagaries of what's going on around them, right? I mean, 
how many people had an idea of, of selling books uh, online and, and, well, CBD for one, Christian book distributors. Do you ever buy a book from CBD? Yes. Yeah, yeah right. Well, they're not Amazon, and they've been, they were doing uh, books by mail uh, probably 30, 40 years before Jeff Bezos, you know, drove his car out to Oregon. It, those kinds of things, I, there's a lot of unknown variables that, that fall into place, right, that's the difference between success and not so successful. Uh, and so I don't, I think, again, we have to be careful not to covet, right, what right. somebody else has, and, and, and then in a sense not feel jealous. Uh, but I do think the scripture, and again, this is my opinion, points to the fact, as, you know, the Apostle Paul, work is good. See, this goes back to my sense of creativity. Sure. God worked and rested, right, uh, through his creation. It's important for us to find something to do. So maybe we, we have to find what our skill set is. And for some of us, it, it's, it might be what others might consider menial. And, and this is one of the things I try to reinforce with my students. There is no bad job. You walk into this campus building, and I'll tell you the people that actually are providing a better environment for you, student, Michael, you know, when you were a student, then your professor are the people that, that clean the restrooms, you know, sweep the floors, dust the hall, you know, whatever. Man, can you imagine what that place would be like, any of those buildings, if they weren't maintained? Right. Yeah. And yet we sometimes look, look down on, and, and I think that's abhorrent, you know, every job is worth it. That person is worthy of our praise you know, uh, yeah, if, if they're doing a good job, and we should encourage that. And I think we have a mental attitude now that somehow, and I, I understand, I've, I've got, don't you like the terminal degree, whatever that means, mm -hmm. in my field? But uh, as I always tell students, I'm simply a farm boy from Indiana. So, and I think, I think, does that mean that I don't have a proud moment? Usually when it's, I'm a better driver than everybody else on the road. That's, <laughs> that's my proud moment, right? That's right. <laughs> That also leads to my sometimes slip up, well, maybe more than sometimes slip on, on language, you know. Uh, so I have, I have things I have to, yeah, to work well, on. You as, know. as we all do. Uh, I guess, and finally, as a, as a, as a closing question, I, I've, I've said this to my congregation, and I didn't actually consult you with this, so forgive me if this is somewhat offensive. No, that's okay. But no, that's okay. I, Offend me. Yeah, I, I've told my, my church that I said, there is really inherently nothing Christian, Christian about the American dream. I said, there's not mm. a nothing uh, non-Christian about right. the American dream. I said, but I think I, it's, it's just my opinion that it has certainly become an idol for a lot of Christians in this nation mm. because we happen to be Christians in this nation that we feel somehow entitled to it. And I, one of the sermons I gave a couple weeks ago was speaking to this frustration that people have where they just don't think they need to be where they're at, and when, when mm. it comes to their jobs, the, the, the working. Most of right. my most of my congregants are retired, but I was speaking to the working folks right. of saying, "Why does God have me here? I'm just waiting for that promotion. I, I want to be able to take the you know climb the proverbial corporate ladder." And I said, "Have we considered that the reason why you're not going to get that is because if we remember our purpose here on the planet is to only serve God." and live out the Great Commission. That's our humanity's right, purpose. Right. And throughout these other means, that's how we can help achieve those things. I said, but what if God says, you're going to best serve people right where you're at, so you're not going to sure. get that promotion. And um, there, was just, there was just a little bit of staring off into the, 
the mm. wilderness of thinking maybe I, maybe I've never considered that because it's all about me. Right. It's all about well, I deserve this. And I said, retirement for you, for some of you, might not be working for 40, 45 years, uh, getting your pension or cashing out um, your, your distributions through your annuity or your 401k that you built up and then uh, being on the golf course or being on the lake all the time. I said, that is a very uh, I, like idealized right. version of what right. you're quote-unquote supposed to do. I said, but there's nothing guaranteed to us about that. So, Absolutely. I, I said, but I said, that's not necessarily a bad thing because I can't judge where God's going to take you. But I said to worship this idea that I'm somehow owed this or mm. that I'm going to retire here or, or the Americana of it all yes. owes this to me. I find something that we don't, we don't discuss that aspect of quote unquote, the American dream, because no. look at the amount of, you know, you're a student of history. I mean, we're the most privileged society that's ever lived. Sure. And so for our 281-year existence, we're the most powerful people, most privileged people, right. and yet we still find ways to f- feel entitled and, and complain. Now, I don't, because right. of freedom, I think it's, I mean, through economics and enterprise, and I think all of those are tied in, which I believe in. I don't want those to sure. go away. But I think you said it earlier, where's our motive? So I, what do you think, where do you think things go wrong for Christians with the American dream? Do you think we worship it? Do you think it's an idol oh. sometimes? Well, I do, and I, and I guess that's a struggle that I have because I, you know, in in terms of trying to uh, reconcile because uh, th- those two things, you know, we we're to be good stewards and to be good servants, and at the same time, some of the techniques we have to be very careful of the techniques because we're <laughs> encouraging people to acquire things that they they don't need. And I don't think there's anything wrong with you know I I want to have thus and so. Yeah, I don't uh, think so either. And, and I think, I, and again, I go back to the, the two sides. I mean, by me wanting something um, and then purchasing it, I've actually given people employment. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So, so now, I'm reading a book now about this whole idea of, of motivations, and we won't get into that, but I mean, you know, so, so if, our motiva- if, if good comes from basically selfish motivations, <laughs> do we get credit for that or not? Yeah. Or not? Well, that we'll save that for about ten years from now. But I'm I'm reading a, a book on that right now, and I. But I think we have to we have to be cautious. What does it mean to be a good steward? You know, God has given me uh, and you and others this this set of assets, talents, or whatever, and and said, use these to further my kingdom. What does that What does that what mean? What does that look like? Yeah. And what does that look like? And uh, so I think we have to constantly come back around and, and ask that question. I have come to really question, this will probably rile some of your audience. You ready? You want to rile me? Absolutely, please. Whether or not uh, retirement is a biblical image or not. Now, I do think extended family is, and I do think if people, you know, need care and concern, and by retirement, I mean where where we we get to the point because I'm I'm past retirement age, right? I mean, and I, I, I like I tell the students, I hope you'll have to drag me out of here with my my feet. Yeah, I you mean, know, I mean, you, you don't look a day over ninety. So exactly, I, mean, I don't feel a day over one hundred and twenty. <laughs> but but the you know, and I used to think, yeah, let's save up a lot of money, and then I can travel and do it. Now, yep. granted, for some of it, you know, my business allowed me to right the, the roles sure, I had, sure. so I got to do the travel. You know, I I got to have a very lavish expense by any standard. I mean, I didn't blow a lot of money, but still, mm-hmm. by most of the world's standards. Um, so, so maybe that desire got sated through that 
experience, but at the same time, um, you know, there, there's statistics that show that people who just don't do anything. Now, I'm not saying you don't say, okay, I'm done with this job. I've been at it 40 years. I want to hang up my hat at this job. Yeah. But then to just go home and sit. And that's it. And yeah. sit. And that's, and that's a lot of people. Right. And, and the death rate, I, I do believe, and again, I, I don't have a site, to, but I, I feel like I read that oftentimes those folks, um, life expectancy is actually reduced as opposed to whether or not they're volunteering at church or volunteering, volunteering with children or volunteering you know, at soup kitchens or volunteering to clean up a park, doing something in community, um, even after, quote, they've, they've retired, again, air quotes, meaning they're not making an income, but, but they are giving of themselves. Sure. And maybe that's the key. You know, we give of ourselves in our employment. We give of ourselves, you know, when we're, when we're studying. Yes, we're getting back. And, and then ultimately when, when if we don't want to and, and don't, can't make further income, but we're living off savings or whatever, what are we doing, yeah. you know, in giving? So it's, it goes, there's something in some book about that. It begins with a B about yeah. giving. I don't, I don't remember the there's, name there's, of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we can find that and link it somewhere. Yeah, I wonder okay. if it's still in print. Uh, yeah. But you're, you're, again, you're talking about motive. And again, that's, that's yeah. sacrificial love. Absolutely. Which is the pinnacle of the gospel. I mean, sure. that, I mean, there's there's nothing again, nothing we can do through except for God's grace. So should and, we stand agape at agape then? Yeah, you know what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had a, no, no, you know, it's play no, but like that's. I think that's the end of it, that, and that's a good. I think that's a good good stopping point because there's really nothing sure. else more to be said other than that. Right. When it comes to what's required of us, again, motive, but yeah, there's there's a difference between you're giving up a career that has given you income. And now you because you are a good steward of that, yes. you're able to support yourself right. financially and, and the other family members. And now you can give your time to giving back through all those volunteer that all those volunteerism yes. opportunities. Yes, absolutely. That, that's not so the idea of retirement, I guess I'll clarify that is again it's the self indulgence of right. I've given over here, now it's I'm gonna right. give everything to myself. This is my time now. I deserve this, so I'm gonna, like I said, I'm gonna go to golf. Sure. I'm gonna golf every day. I'm gonna sure. go on the lake every day. Don't ask me for anything because I'm retired. Right. And and, th- and that's what I grew up with. That's what I grew up hearing that that's what was gonna happen. You go to school, you go to college, you get a job, you work right. for forty years, and if you can survive and you have time, you can retire. And and then you can't basically you don't have fun when you have kids. And then they're finally out of the house. You're in middle age. Well, that age part's and, true. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. You get out, and then you can have fun finally if you make sure. it to retirement. And I'm thinking, I don't know if that's where I'm trying to look. What I'm trying to read through Old Testament, New Testament. Right. Like, where is that? Where is that biblical at? Because that seems a lot about me. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and then when things don't go my way, it's like, well, God, why? Why would you do any different? Why would you ask anything else of me? Sure. It's like we never even consider the fact that, like, no, like I have more for you after this. So, and I know we probably ought to ought to wrap up here in a minute or two. But do you think that? Um, Whose responsibility is, well, I don't think the government has a responsibility to do much of it. They, they take on a lot. But church and parents to help develop um, a worldview within their children. I want, I, you know, we never talked. My mother and dad did that for me, but they, they wouldn't use the term worldview, right? I mean, sure. but... Um, but I think I see, you know, um, again, these worldly desires. It's like I want to live for today, and I think there's something in the scripture about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
as as opposed to you know I am on a journey, and 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 um, you know if I grant my acknowledgement of God and again Jesus is King, I'm being prepared for something. I don't even know what it is, and I I was talking. I'm on a search committee for a, a pastor at our parish, and um, I was talking to to the warden. That's the head of the. Not, not, okay, uh, I, I keep mixing all these old. I'm sorry about the Anglican terms. I'm basically a, a Protestant. But, I love it. But but um, and I said, but look look at the call because we're going to have to step out on faith as is this person we think we're going to call. And I said, but 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 look at Abraham or or or, or you know or. Look at David. I mean, they didn't see the future. I mean, we, we have the advantage of sitting here and looking, well, look, oh, it had been easy for Abraham. You know, God said, well, I'm going to, you know, bless you to the stars. And you and Sarah, you know, you're old, but you're going to have kids. And and they're sitting there. When they first heard his story, it had to been the most crazy thing they'd ever heard. Or, or you know, David becoming king. And and we see from the armchair quarterbacking, looking back on the on the replays, right, and our lives, you see, are, 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 we're not David, you know, we're not Abraham, we're not Sarah, but our trajectory is very similar, right? We don't know the outcome. All we can do is be faithful yeah. that God loves us, and as, as we respond to him in turn with our allegiance and loyalty, uh, that there is um, a good end to all this, you know, and I'm not complaining, man. I've had a I've had a wonderful but you know, have I had my upsets? Yes, but I mean but overall as I look back, uh I can see God's hand in in my life. Yeah. But I think I think that helps what's helped is is maturing this worldview, mm-hmm. if you will. So, anyway, yeah, yeah, I and I think the church is I mean, I mean, Proverbs talks about this. I mean, of course, I, I say this yes. now at the end, but I mean, it, it it says in its very early chapters that, you know, God grants people wealth um, but it doesn't give them the ability to enjoy them. Instead, somebody else oh. enjoys it. And then he says, but to some, he does give them that. And he, then he says that it's, it's, it's up to us. It's, and frankly, it's the fact that we get to enjoy those labors sure. because it's something that God has blessed. But, yeah, I think it's a systemic failure on the, on the church to educate. Uh, I, I think pastors have entertained, and they haven't educated. Right. And therefore, when you're not educating parents, when you're not having versions of Sunday school, um, you know, sure. catechism and the Catholic Church, and you're teaching them, this is what we believe and why right. we believe it. Right. Uh, it's that contrast, showing that contrast. Then we're, we're, we, those, those parents who go home and talk to their, chi- their children, and they hear their children's stories, and hear their complaints, and there's no counter-narrative there to say, hey, well, mom and dad were, have been learning this because pastor sure. this or teacher sure. this, and, and here's what we believe on this subject. And it's because we are reading our Bibles, we're praying, we're fasting as a church, and I was educated in church about this very thing. And here, let me pass it on to my child. Um, so that is something that I think has been a systemic failure in the last 30 years is that we've completely gone away sure. with the massive successes of church is actual qualified teaching in the church. Yep. And But that's something that I hope, you know, with, with my little church, what I can control that these things that we're talking about are, are values that will be instilled, uh, yeah, even sure. in a, even in an aging congregation. Sure. That we have something to pass on. So, um, I, I gotta say, I gotta thank you so much for uh, your time, uh, 
Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Michael. So, yeah. and is there anywhere anywhere that people if they want to look you up or find you or get connected with any of um, your your entrepreneurship? Is there any? Well, sure. I mean, I um, I can give you my um, I have an email address that that goes to my consulting business. I'm not. I don't. You don't. And they can just contact me there rather than contacting me at the university. I don't. I don't mind if they contact me at the university, but. Which which do you think you'd prefer in a way of oh. an email address? Oh well, though that's just for that's for listeners. Is there like if if a listener had like they wanted to? Connect well, that's what with I mean. The yeah. easiest way to do that is is at Allen dot Knight A L L E N dot K N I G H T ampersand at E A Knight Consulting dot com. Excellent. Allen dot Knight at E A Knight Consulting dot com. Right. Excellent. So, so that's been that's if people have any feedback or they have any questions or they just want to oh yeah if they want to if they want to ha- uh, you know lash out uh, oh, you yes know, please can't believe you said this yeah. what do you know and <laughs> excellent uh, well well thank you very much I very appreciate much. your time Alan I hope you have a good rest of your evening all oh right? absolutely thank you and, and I look forward maybe we can sit down again and chat I, I hope so unless they start throwing things at me okay uh, in in the comment section absolutely <laughs> very good <laughs> thanks Alan. Thank you so much again to Dr. Knight and his wonderful, wonderful insight and experience in the realm of business and entrepreneurship. I really appreciate his perspective. Feel free to connect with him at the email he just gave. If you have any questions or recommendations or just some insight into the realm of business, entrepreneurship, and how that intersects with Christianity and how that affects our spiritual lives, I think he is a great reference for all of you. Thank you to him and his time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. As always, I appreciate all your support and your feedback. Feel free to connect with us on all the social media platforms we discuss every week on Facebook, YouTube, and through our email, wsnspodcast at gmail.com. Appreciate y'all. May God bless you and may God keep you.